Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. This is New Books in Eastern European Studies, and I'm your host, Jill Messino. Today, I'll be speaking with Margot Jata Fidelis about her new book, Imagining the World from Behind the Iron Curtain, Youth and the Global Sixties in Poland, which was published by Oxford University Press in 2022. Welcome, Gosha. Hello, Jill. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Uh, Just a little background on Dr. Fidelis before we begin. She is an associate professor in the Department of History at the University of Illinois at Chicago, where she teaches courses on modern Europe, Eastern Europe, Poland, the Cold War, women and gender, and the global 60s. Her research focuses on social and cultural issues, particularly everyday life and the relationship between individuals and state power in post-1945 Eastern Europe. Her first book, Women, Communism, and Industrialization in Postwar Poland, was published with Cambridge University Press in 2010, and she's also published a wide range of articles uh, in the American Historical Review, the Journal of Women's History, and in Slavic Review. So, Gosha, can you tell our listeners how you came to write this book? I have had a long relationship with the 60s. It started as a childhood fascination. I loved looking at family pictures, especially the pictures of my mother in a miniskirt or multiple miniskirts and hairstyles, such as the messy beehive a la Brigitte Bardot. She grew up in a village in Eastern Poland during the 60s. This is why I could not imagine writing a book about the 60s and not including rural youth, but we can talk about this later. In the book, I also talk about another picture that um, my parents took when they traveled to Yugoslavia in 1970. And that was a picture of a hippie in Dubrovnik. So that was my early exposure to the transnational side of the 60s. 
Uh, and of course, when I was growing up in the 1970s and 80s, I watched a lot of movies from the 60s on Polish TV. Polish, French, American movies. The 60s seemed to be exciting, experimental, forward-looking, uh, and also full of independent and rebellious women. Later on, I developed a more intellectual interest in the 60s. So this book really started in 2007, in June, when I went to a conference in Kingston, Canada. Uh, the title of the conference was New World Coming, the 60s and the Shaping of Global Consciousness. Uh, this was my introduction to the field, to this exciting field of the global 60s. They featured more than 500 papers about almost every country in the world. However, there were only two papers about Eastern Europe, and that included my paper. Another, was, uh, another one was on Czechoslovakia. So I decided to do something about this. Um, and of course, this exclusion of Eastern Europe um, went hand in hand with the Cold War idea that the Soviet bloc was somehow isolated from the rest of the world, that the Iron Curtain prevented people in Eastern Europe from participating in any global developments. But I knew, of course, that my mother from a small village in Eastern Poland participated in the culture of the 60s. So... I decided to find out what happened in Eastern Europe in the 60s. So can you elaborate a little more on that? So how how is the global 60s different in Poland than it is, let's say, in France or Britain? So in the West, in liberal democratic societies, right, that aren't communist. And, and your definition of the global 60s, what time period are we talking about? So what time period is, is, is encompassed by this? And what are some of the themes associated with it? So this is a book about the 60s, but in many ways, it also aims at rethinking the post-1945 period in Polish history. Traditionally, Polish history has been studied in the national context. Uh, this is not unique to Poland. That's how nation states usually conceive of their histories. So one of my goals was to go beyond the national context or the regional context and to look at Poland through uh, a different lens, that of transnational connections, exchanges, and imaginations. And again, this allowed me to challenge this entrenched Cold War narrative that the Eastern Bloc was somehow isolated from the rest of the world. So from the Polish perspective, the global 60s meant first and foremost an intense imagining of the world enabled by new cultural connections and the mass media. And this was true, especially for young people. So I use the concept of transnational imagination, which I borrowed from a historian of Africa, Jeremy Presthold. In general, in writing this book, I was very much influenced by the wonderful historical literature on the global 60s in the global south. 
I write about how young people imagined themselves in their particular locality in Poland, but also in relation with the global sphere and especially the global youth culture of the time. So this is a description of the global 60s that could be applied to any place, not only Poland. Uh, the global 60s are about connections, exchanges, and also about the transnational imagination. In Poland, the process takes place in a different context. That context is state socialism. We are used to think about the communist state as usually putting restrictions on uh, all kinds of free expression. But in this case, the socialist state actually participated or facilitated many of the transnational connections. And it embraced a version of what I call socialist modernity, an alternative modernity to uh, the capitalist modernity. Uh, socialist modernity assimilated, selected Western trends, selected global trends. So for Poland, this concept of socialist modernity that also includes the engagement with the outside world is critical to understanding the global 60s. In terms of chronology, the global 60s do not denote the decade of the 1960s, so they don't start in 1961 and end in 1970. Usually when historians talk about the global 60s, they mean the long 60s, so the period extending from around the mid-1950s to the early 1970s. And of course, that chrono chronology would be different for different contexts. In my book, I start in 1954, at the beginning of the thaw or destalinization in Eastern Europe, and end in the early 1970s, which was the high point of the so-called consumer socialism in Poland. So my 60s extend over almost two decades. And the 60s, um, the global 60s is really a metaphor, a way to talk about interactions between um, local, the local and the global. So it's a, it's a kind of methodology to study uh, local expressions within the global context or local expressions of global trends. So we're talking about a multivalent concept, right? That that has temporal significance parameters, but also um, has uh, an impact in how we understand this as historians, right? As sociologists, right? From from various perspectives, and it's about kind of a, a thematic uh, approach to the region as well. Yes, and I also look at the ways in which young people used global. Uh, concepts, global connections, to pursue, propel their own agenda uh, within uh, the context of state socialism in Poland. And that gets me to my next question, uh, youth. So who is included in your category of youth? 
in general, I tend to stay close to my sources. So I use the contemporary state definition of youth. Young people in my book are those who are between 15 and 30 years of age. This was the age bracket to qualify uh, for an official youth organization in Poland. This is also the definition that Polish sociologists used in their research on youth. And this is really the time when youth becomes a separate category. So political leaders and sociologists still talk about different groups of youth. For example, students would be a subgroup of young people. But there is an understanding that young people are separate from everyone else. And again, this is a concept that is present not only in Poland, but uh, it's transnationals. Many scholars argue that youth in the modern era in general is a quintessentially transnational group. The very concept, the sociological concept of youth culture that emerged in the United States and Great Britain in the mid-1950s takes shape in the context of um, accelerated commercial culture and exchange of ideas. So for Poland, rather than looking at young people as subjects to a totalitarian regime, this would be a conventional way of talking about young people under communism, I look at them as active participants of global conversations. Global conversations about and among young people. And these conversations during the 60s included non-conformist lifestyles, all kinds of experimentation with consumer goods, technological products, with counterculture and leftist politics. Thank you for that. I think your analysis really speaks to the richness of youth as a site of historical analysis, as well as to your talent as a historian, so that you're able to analyze youth from so many different perspectives and in so many different contexts. And of course, I look forward to discussing this in greater detail um, in the interview. But first, I'd like to discuss the period in which the seeds for the global 60s in Poland are planted, so namely the thaw. So can you tell our listeners a bit about the thaw, where it originates, and what its reverberations in Poland are, especially in the realm of culture and everyday life? The thaw is typically associated with a cultural and intellectual movement that emerged in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe after the death of Stalin in March 1953. So it's associated with liberalization, a greater freedom for cultural, artistic expression. The term is often used alongside or interchangeably with destalinization. Uh, this may be a more familiar term. It denotes um, reforms, mostly political and economic reforms that take place after the death of Stalin. Uh, these reforms included dismantling the terror machine, doing away with the cult of personality, 
And there are also some economic reforms that aimed at the expansion of the consumer sector of the economy, which was very important because Stalinism stressed heavy industry. So there is a slowing down of the industrial drive. I look at the thaw in Poland as both a cultural and a political movement. There is a significant political change in Poland during that time. A new general secretary comes to power in October 1956. His name is Władysław Gomułka. So he is a new leader of the Polish party state. There is much hope attached to Gomułka. He is supposed to implement the so-called Polish road to socialism, which means making socialism more compatible with the Polish tradition, with Polish social and cultural conditions, and making Poland less dependent on the Soviets. I start with the thought because this is a moment when young people become especially active. Uh, they, they are at the forefront of what they call genuine workers' democracy. And an important part of that new genuine workers' democracy is being open to the outside world, to modern trends in youth culture that are going on um, everywhere, including in the capitalist world. I start in 1954 because this is really the time that one can see the beginning of new forms of self-expression coming from young people. Uh, this movement starts in leftist circles of students and young intelligentsia. Interestingly, the state responds by facilitating some of those desires for um, self-expression and for connecting to the outside world. And one example is a new youth magazine that starts publishing in January 1954. It's called Around the World. It's published by the official youth organization. And it's supposed to expose young people in Poland to a variety of culture and cultures and geographical places. So in contrast to Stalinism, which was seen as isolating, limiting mobility, limiting cultural expression. In Poland, the thaw ended in late 1957, at least according to conventional accounts. Uh, in late 1957, Gomułka consolidates his political power and he reverts to some of the elements of the Stalinist system. So he turned out to be a disappointment to many young people who hoped for a more radical redefinition of socialism. Um, however, I argue that the thought persisted in another way as an intellectual challenge that never went away. For young people in particular, the social and political environment changed in significant ways. They had more outlets for self-expression, despite the crackdown on some of the thought movements. And these outlets could be found, especially in the sphere of culture. For example, we have a flourishing of the so-called student clubs that become spaces for cultural experimentation and for connecting to the outside world 
through music, dance, fashion. In other words, there is no return to Stalinism. So I'd like to return to the magazine you mentioned earlier, Around the World, because this is one of the continuities with the Thaw period. So even though the Thaw ends politically, there are these cultural and intellectual continuities into the 60s and even early 70s. So can you tell us a bit more about the magazine? What type of citizen were the editors trying to fashion? And what are some of the ways in which the global 60s are represented in this publication? So Around the World is a magazine that starts publishing in January 1954. Its colorful cover is immediately visible. It stands out. The content is even more surprising since it does not feature explicit ideological messages that were expected during Stalinism. The magazine did not call on young people to build socialism. On the contrary, it's a magazine that features a lot of international material, especially material that relates to global youth culture, including including, uh, music, rock and roll, new forms of sociability, uh, young people hanging out in cafes and parks. The magazine is really full of these kinds of images and also positive images of the West as an exciting place to explore rather than the main enemy as the West used to be described under Stalinism. So among the political elites, there is a general agreement that young people need leisure, entertainment, that they cannot be constantly agitated in a political way. There is a redefinition of the young socialist citizen during that time. Young people are now perceived as diverse human beings with distinct needs, distinct psychological features. And those needs require this this new socialist citizenship requires that young people also need to know about the world they need to be educated so what makes the young socialist person superior in a sense to the young person in the west is knowledge about the world both socialist and capitalist. I found these really interesting documents of the official youth organizations in which they talk about how um, the youth magazines and the press in general need to expose young people to information and images of the West. They believed that after the initial fascination, the young people would develop a proper understanding of capitalism and choose socialism. So at that time, there is a lot of trust that is put in young people, a lot of trust that they make informed decisions. So Around the World was one of the first youth magazines aimed at a kind of a depoliticized leisure and entertainment, and also at education. Um, when you read those Polish magazines and other popular magazines uh, during the 60s, you will find that there is a limited political or ideological content. 
Uh, on the contrary, they tend to feature a lot of material that you can find in youth magazines in the West at the time, except for the advertisements. So they would have reports on youth fashion, youth consumer products, gossip about celebrities, photos of rock stars, movie stars, reports on youth culture in other countries. So after destalinization, there is this conscious effort on the part of the media and state actors to depart from political ag agitation that was part of the Stalinist model and to approach young people in a different way. So in addition to official media, you also examine how the state used events to reshape notions of socialist citizenship. And one of the events you examine is the Fifth World Youth and Students Festival, which took place in Warsaw in 1955, and which you note was the turning point that stimulated Polish youth's transnational imagination in the post-war era. So can you tell us a bit about this event? The audience may be more familiar with the Youth and Student Festival that takes place in Moscow in 1957. And it's also considered to be a high point of the thaw in the Soviet Union. So that was the sixth youth festival. The fifth World Youth and Student Festival was held in Warsaw in the summer of 1955, so two years uh, earlier. Uh, these festivals were organized by the World Federation of Democratic Youth and the International Student Union, uh, both of which were international leftist-leaning organizations. So in the summer of 1955, approximately 127,000 young people from 116 countries came to the Polish capital. The festival became an unprecedented youth carnival and celebration of cultural diversity. And we have to imagine this, um, the unprecedented nature of this festival. It, it takes place right after Stalinism. So it's really a major break, a major turning point in terms of uh, even young people use this uh, expression, making a hole in the Iron Curtain. So the festival was organized by the state under the official banner of internationalism, but of course, young people shaped the festivities in their own way. This is the moment when young people make their desires to connect to the global community of young people in very explicit ways. And that takes place not only during the festival, but after. In fact, after the festival, there is a powerful public campaign launched by young people to demand easing travel restrictions. So the State Passport Bureau is flooded with applications. Young people are sending letters to state officials and to youth magazines uh, stating that they made friends during the festival and that they want to 
visit those friends or have uh, these newly um, uh, new acquaintances come to Poland. So they demand interaction with other young people uh, in different parts of the world. They also argue that travel should be part of the proper socialist education. In fact, the editors of Around the World, um, they, they stood at the front of this public campaign to demand opportunities for travel and crossing borders. What was interesting, the young people acknowledged that there were expanded travel opportunities for organized travel. So, for example, representatives of youth organizations did have opportunities to travel abroad, but they explicitly demanded private travel. So, uh, with the support of the editors uh, from around the world, they also published this open letter to the Minister of the Interior to demand to ease passport restrictions and to open Polish borders in a way. Well, I'd like to move on to chapter two now. And this chapter is entitled Youth as Modernity. And of course, this gets back to some of the themes that you've discussed already, this notion that the global 60s is not just a time period, but it's about this idea of creating this modern society that's very much based on youth. But can you elaborate on this uh, in greater detail with respect to Poland in particular? So what are some of the features of socialist modernity as, as it relates to young people? What I found really striking when I started reading youth magazines um, was the omnipresent term modernity, or in Polish, nowoczesność. Everything was about modernity. You don't find the word socialism used all that often during that time in the popular press. The term communism is very hard to find in the Polish popular press during that time. Instead, we have endless debates about what it meant to be a modern person. At the same time, the concept of modernity was very much linked to youth. Young people were considered to be the embodiment of modernity. Also, the young generation was believed to be unprecedented in the history of the world according at least to uh, Polish sociologists and other state actors, because of the opportunities for material, material well-being and opportunities for self-expression as young people. And this idea of young people as the symbol of modernity as the symbol of the future is not exceptional for Poland. We have similar discussions about youth um, developing in the West, for example, in post-war France. Uh, I am thinking here um, about one of my favorite books by Richard Ivan Jobs, Riding the New Wave. But those discussions in Poland have a socialist flavor. The modernity they talk about, as you said, is socialist modernity. 
So this is the modernity that is alternative to the Western modernity, which would include free market and liberal democracy. So this term modernity was so popular, I think also because it was malleable. It could be defined in different ways. And indeed, experts, politicians, the media and young people define what it means to be modern in different ways. And we have these amazing debates that develop in the popular press during that time. So let me say a few words about the state's idea of modernity for young people before 1968. I want to make this point that this is before 1968 because the student demonstrations that take place in Poland in 1968 and the student demonstrations that take place all over the world during that time um, affect the Polish state discourse about youth. So prior to 1968, the state believed that young people were supposed to participate in universal modern trends. They were supposed to have access to modern entertainment, leisure, they were supposed to be exposed to Western material, movies, rock and roll, miniskirts, blue jeans, consumption was very important. In fact, consumption was not considered to be a threat at that time. Sociologists, for example, argued that it was okay to expose young people to Western lifestyles and to Western consumer products because the socialist socioeconomic context would prevent these young people from engaging in excess, from pursuing consumerism as a goal in life. So there was the strong belief that the socialist context mitigated the effects of consumption and other trends, such as sexual behavior. Political elites and experts were very much concerned about the so-called sexual revolution that was going on during, time, uh, during that time in the West. But they believed that young people in Poland would not engage in any kind of sexual promiscuity because the socialist education, the socialist economic relations would prevent this. In other words, socialism was expected to create modern and moral human beings. Gosha, you just mentioned experts, and my next question was actually going to be about experts, namely these sociologists who are conducting research on young people, laborers, women, a whole host of groups. And these sociological studies are a central part of your analysis in the book. So can you tell us about their findings? What are sociologists discovering about young people in Polish society at this time? There is an explosion of sociological studies in Poland in the second half of the 1950s and through the 60s. And this is also connected to the fact that sociology was banned during Stalinism. Um, you could not have study or pursue 
sociology in any way at the university, but it comes back in 1956. Sociology comes back to Polish universities. And at that time, sociologists engaged in gathering, um, in um, conducting surveys among young people, because again, uh, young people were considered to be such an important group during that time for definitions of modernity. So sociological research provided empirical findings about youth, but it also helped construct youth. So in my book, I was mainly interested in how sociological studies functioned in public definitions and public debates about youth. What I found especially interesting was that the sociological research in the late 1950s and early 1960s tended to argue that young people increasingly turned away from politics and towards leisure, consumption, and personal happiness. And again, this is something that is common through Europe during that time, both East and West. Sociologists highlight the passivity, the, the passive attitude of young people and their preoccupation with consumer objects rather than politics. Again, this is 1968, before 1968. So I interpret this per perception of passivity uh, or the in Poland, they use this word apolitics, being apolitical, uh, not being interested in politics in any way. I interpret this not as a reflection of reality, but as the inability on the part of sociologists to describe the new youth behavior that linked culture and politics in new ways, in ways that were difficult to discern for experts. So young people in Poland and everywhere engaged in politics through creating their own styles. This is not an explicit political action, but it shows agency as a political actor. And it also creates a context for youth rebellions in 1968, which are political and which are taking place in the streets. And which we're going to get to in a subsequent section of the interview when we talk about 1968. But I actually just wanted to ask you a follow-up question about apolitics and the supposed apolitical nature or passivity of young people, because it seems like there's also some continuities here, right, with the Stalinist period, in the sense that rather than being oriented towards domestic politics, uh, young people are oriented towards the global, right? So you have young people who are promoting socialism abroad. So then wouldn't young people's interest in and engagement with the Global South be considered political? I would say so, yes. So the interest in the outside world is political, even if uh, the things that they are learning or that they 
um, would like to engage with are mostly cultural, right? It's, it's about youth culture, but it's also a new expression of young people. And the interest in um, the global South um, could also be part of that engagement with the world of embracing diversity of wanting to be part of the global community of youth. So I um, I wanted to avoid this idea that young people in Eastern Europe were always fascinated by the West, always desired Western products, uh, Western cultural products, Western consumption, and so on. I really want to stress in my book that they were interested in in the world, not just the West. When they talked about imagining the world, they did mean uh, the West, but also the global South. And these youth magazines provided ways of connecting and imagining themselves in the modern world of diverse cultures, in the modern global community of youth. What you said about the term apolitical is really interesting. And I was surprised when I found this word in, in the official language that was circulating in Poland in the sociological language or uh, in the correspondence between the editors of youth magazines and the party press bureau, apolitical is completely contrary to any Marxist ideology. Um, and yet it becomes an acceptable term in Poland. You could argue that you are being apolitical in fact, during that time, sociologists invented this really interesting term that they often put in their surveys, which was a political supporter of the system, which really meant that to be part of the socialist polity, you didn't have to be engaged in any political activity. It was okay to focus on your private goals. But... Uh, it was a way to facilitate, to some extent, these new expressions of young people to um, let them know that it was okay to engage with consumption or youth culture, uh, that this was not a threat to the socialist system, as long as they didn't defy the system in a political way, this is something that took place during the thaw and um, something that the state, the post-Stalinist state was concerned about, uh, that it was okay to focus on these youth styles. And the socialist state, in fact, provided the space for this kind of uh, self-expression. It's a kind of a delicate balance because they, they want young people to be politicized, but towards consolidating and building socialism and promoting it elsewhere. But they also feel like they need to placate 
young people as well. And, you know, with some of the goods that the West is getting. So it's, it's kind of, okay, we can promote consumerism, but only within, within reason, a kind of managed consumerism. But I wanted to just real quickly uh, get back to, uh, you mentioned the magazines again and how it was through the magazines that young people learned about the outside world, right? Learned especially about the global South. So maybe you could just give us a snapshot because you have such great images in this book of, of what these images were of individuals from the global South. So what would have been some examples? The images in youth magazines are amazing. I wish I could include more of them in my book. So one of my favorite images is um, the woman on the cover of the student magazine, which was called ITD or etc. And that cover features a Cuban girl. In fact, she was called the Cuban girl. The Cuban girl was supposed to represent the Cuban re revolution, uh, the issue of ITD, uh, came from 1962, I believe. However, the symbol of the Cuban Revolution, according to youth magazines, was not really Fidel Castro, but this gorgeous blonde woman who was um, wearing a uniform of the literacy brigades, uh, the brigades created by Castro to bring schooling education uh, to the countryside in Cuba. So she was a young woman, part of these brigades. And this is how the Global South was often depicted in youth magazines as, as an exotic place, but also to some extent eroticized place. Uh, the student magazine Itede featured young, beautiful women on almost every cover um, of, uh, of the publication. So, uh, so the Cuban girl is this um, symbol of the Cuban revolution that is also trying to establish connection to Polish young people. There is a short description uh, underneath that picture that says that this young woman is bringing the torch of education to, um, to people in Cuba. And the torch of education, this specific expression was often used when, um, it, it was often used in Poland to refer to young Polish women in the late 19th century who went to the countryside to teach village children to read and write. So the magazines in presenting these images of the global self often tried to build connections, tried to encourage the readers in Poland to identify with people and the struggles of the global south. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. 
No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Yeah, I find that fascinating and also just kind of glamorizing activism, right? Uh, sexualizing it in a way as well. That's so, right. Yeah, that's it's really fascinating. And it's, I mean, it's obviously just the conventional strategy used by the West, right? Sex sells. So um, by glamorizing things, you'll make it more appealing. But here it's not commodities. It's an actual act, right? It's a pursuit. So I find that really interesting. It's glamorizing socialist work. Yep. Okay, so I'd like to move on to chapter four now, where you talk about students. Um, And can you tell us a little bit about the student community that emerges or the communities that emerge in the 60s? And I guess also the the 50s as well, since you have a longer time span you're looking at. And, you know, how does the student body change and and, and obviously increases during this period? So just what was their what was the background of the students and what were they involved in? When one looks at the scholarship that deals with students in Poland, that scholarship tends to look at students as a political group, the future intelligentsia. They are usually the ones who resist the oppressive communist system and so on. I took a different approach. I argue that students were not a monolithic group, they were not a political group, they were a community in the making. What that means is that at the time, students became much more socially diverse than ever before. This happened to some extent because there were efforts on the part of the state to provide education opportunities to traditionally disadvantaged groups. So, you would have an influx of students from the working class background or from the um, rural areas of Poland. So at that time, we have this social upheaval that is going on within the student um, community, something that was extremely Before the war, it was extremely difficult for anyone, especially um, from the villages, to attend a higher education institution. And this democratizing trend is global. So uh, in Poland, the socialist state is involved, but at the same time, this is also part of the Cold War effort in general to mobilize learning and science. So... This is a community in the making as the traditional academic culture absorbs these socially diverse individuals. Moreover, there are more and more young women from all social backgrounds entering universities and creating challenges to the male-dominated intellectual culture. In that chapter, and I am sure you noticed this, gender is an uh, important dimension, um, an, an important dimension of the student community. In particular, historical narratives and personal memories of the former students tend to idealize the student community. So students were supposed to be better educated, more progressive than others, more egalitarian, 
more open-minded. But when we look closely at student everyday life, both the formal education and the leisure activities, such as student clubs, we can see that these were often places that created new hierarchies and new exclusions among students. Uh, gender was one of them. So women found it difficult to fit into the male-dominated student community. And also uh, young people who came from the villages, uh, they were also often stigmatized by the urban young people, by the urban student community. So there were all these uh, new hierarchies and exclusions that uh, the student milieu created. Um, so uh, I spent some time talking about um, the gender aspect of student culture. I already mentioned this popular student magazine, ITD, uh, which featured young women, mostly young female students on the cover of almost every issue. Um, so the student magazine engaged in objectifying female students. Uh, they also organized photographic beauty contests for young women. And I argued that this was done to maintain gender hierarchies in higher education. You could not question gender equality in public because gender equality was part of state political agenda. Um, but popular culture provided ways of reaffirming the dominant position of heterosexual men. Yeah, in the Romanian women's and youth magazines I examined for my book, I also discovered beauty contests. And of course, I was quite surprised when I found this. But upon further analysis, I understood that, yeah, this is a means for selling socialism by beautifying it. Also a means of making it seem more global, more Western, right, more hip. Um, but as you noted, also assumed a more insidious function, and that was to maintain gender hierarchies. So the magazines are at once promoting the expression of modern forms of femininity, but then they're also reinforcing traditional notions of gender. So really interesting. I would like to discuss uh, another group of young people that you examine in the book, the hippies. And you devote an entire chapter to the hippie movement, uh, noting that they were different from uh, their Western counterparts. So could you explain in what ways they are different and then also explain their relationship to Catholicism? The hippie chapter was quite challenging to write because most of the sources on the hippies in Poland come from state institutions, especially the security apparatus, which was in charge of conducting surveillance of the hippie community. And of course, as you can imagine, they had a particular perspective on the hippies. They um, saw this movement as a kind of pathology developing among young people. Uh, in fact, um, at the very beginning, when they started spotting young men with long hair on the streets, um, when the hippie movement started in Poland, 
um, the security apparatus was convinced that this was something funded by the CIA. So there are not many voices of the hippies themselves that are available in archival documents. And in this chapter, um, I very much wanted to focus on what the hippies themselves thought about their movement. Um, so the chapter is very much centered on my interviews with former hippies. Now, when we think about counterculture, especially counterculture in the West, we usually think about anti-capitalism. We think about hippies as recruiting from the privileged middle classes. When they talk about dropping out, they talk about dropping out from capitalism. In Poland, anti-capitalism was on the hippie agenda, but it was not the dominant theme because there was no capitalism to rebel against. At the same time, I think that the core values of the hippies, of the hippie community in Poland, was very much in tune with the hippies everywhere. I went to this conference on counterculture in San Francisco a few months ago. Um, it was an interesting meeting because half of the participants were scholars like me, and the other half were the, were the former hippies from San Francisco. Um, and the San Francisco hippies very much identified with the hippies I was talking about. So being a hippie was this project of self-creation against hegemonic ideologies. Whatever these hegemonic ideologies were in your particular locality. So in Poland, this would be the hegemonic ideologies of nation, state, religion, patriarchy. And I think that this was something that was shared among hippies, no matter of the specific political context. In terms of the social background, hippies in Poland came from all walks of life. Most of them came from, um, from cities. Many were students or sons and daughters of the intelligentsia, but not all of them. You could find hippies in small towns. Uh, you could also find hippies in villages, but they, uh, they, they usually left the village. For example, the leader of the hippie movement, his uh, nickname was Prophet, came from a small village in southern Poland, um, but he he moved out of that village. Usually, if you are a hippie, you would not stay in your family village. I like how Juliana first described the hippie identity in the Soviet Union in her work on Soviet hippies. She said that the Soviet hippies practiced an alternative emotional style. Uh, the emotional style that was different from the rigid, deregulated style of the Soviet state. And you could find something similar in Poland. Um, the hippie identity was flexible, fluid, um, and creative. 
you asked about religion. So the Catholic Church was interested in the hippie movement as a way to connect to young people. I don't want to say, however, that the church as an institution supported the hippies in some way. They were probably as afraid of the hippies as the state. They perceived the hippies as a threat to the traditional social order. However, some priests conducted what they called pastoral work among the hippies. So the church did provide spaces, spaces that were independent from state control, where you could gather and discuss the hippie philosophy. And this was attractive to some hippies. The church also organized summer retreats for young people, which often facilitated gatherings of the hippies. So Catholicism was an element of the hippie life in Poland. And counterculture was also an element of Polish Catholicism during that time. I would argue young people engaging in open discussions about religion, spiritual life, socializing um, in modern ways, often playing guitars at those summer retreats, um, pushing for a less formal liturgy in the Catholic Church, or being in mixed gender groups. So both Catholicism and counterculture came um, into this very interesting um, but somewhat ambivalent symbiosis. I do want to say, however, that most of the hippies stayed away from any organized institutions, and this included the church. So even if they participated in some of these retreats or meetings, they tended to distance themselves from any kind of establishment, including the church. Yeah, which is why I find it kind of striking that one of the leaders of the hippie movement was named Prophet. <laughs> they were into spiritual life. Right. Right. No, and I understand, but I just think I, I just think of like in terms of being a non-hierarchical community and having that philosophy, I find it interesting. But uh, I also find it fascinating that there there were commonalities around which members of these alternative youth groups and the church could find common cause. And of course, then we see that also into the 80s. Um, we see that in places like East Germany as well, because of course, these are organizations or communities that are challenging state authority. But uh, we will get to that soon when we talk about 68. So I'd like to discuss rural youth because one of the important things uh, about your book is that you don't just focus on urban young people. You focus also on on rural individuals, um, which is you know demographic that's often overlooked in analyses of youth, regardless if it's youth in east or west. And one of the ways you get uh, at young people's voices in rural areas is by examining the autobiographies they submit to these memoir competitions that are organized um, by the ZMW in conjunction with popular magazines. So can you tell us a little bit about the nature of these autobiographies? Let me start by saying that until 1969, the rural population in Poland comprised the majority of the population. So 
the late 1960s is the time when, for the first time, the number of urban residents surpasses the number of rural residents. So during the 60s, the rural population comprised the majority. And most young people lived or at least grew up in the villages. But of course, traditionally, the rural population, despite the numbers, had occupied an inferior social position. In the interwar period, the landowners and the urban intelligentsia were the most privileged. The rural population lacked access to education and other benefits of modern societies. So the rural autobiographies are extremely interesting. Most of the authors had a sense of having been marginalized in Polish society, uh, of not having been understood, appreciated as a rural actors. So they often presented themselves as empowered individuals who had something important to say to the rest of Polish society. They spoke about the experiences of rural people as important. And I also write about literacy and writing as an act of asserting subjectivity. And um, after the Second World War, there is a literacy campaign uh, in Poland, in the countryside. And we have a um, development of the network of schools through the Polish countryside. So every child from the village gets elementary education, at least elementary education after 1945. And this is very important because then the skill of writing helps these young rural people to express themselves and to express themselves to the wider public. Of course, as any source, the memoirs need to be examined in a critical way. Uh, they are mediated sources. I looked at the original submissions, at the handwritten memoirs. So you can really look at the materiality of the memoir to um, find out even more about the subjectivity of these young villagers. They sometimes include drawings or they... Um, uh, they write in uh, school books. So at the same time, one can assume that there was a degree of auto censorship on the part of the authors, but it would be unfair to dismiss those narratives. These were deeply personal writings that uh, the authors did not always want to publicize, especially young women often asked the organizers of the competition not to publish their memoirs, or at least not to reveal their names. They wrote about hidden emotions, family conflicts, domestic violence. So writing autobiographies was 
therapeutic in many ways. And this was especially the case for young women. Young women often dealt with the trauma that they had experienced through writing this kind of an autobiography. So um, they dealt with the trauma that they had experienced, but were not allowed to voice it in their community. So the memoirs give us unique insights into personal intimate lives of rural young people as they wanted them to be presented and understood by outside audiences. And they gave uh, women and girls this form for expressing some of their anxieties and concerns and worries, like you said, that they wouldn't have had elsewhere. So in a way, they could also be cathartic. Yes, very much so. Well, I'd like to move on to 1968 now, and you deal with this in chapters five and seven. So can you tell us what happens in March of 1968? And then also talk about how uh, villages, so that 1968 was just not an urban phenomenon, but that it had reverberations and um, also there were expressions of it in, in rural areas as well. In March 1968, there was a student demonstration at Warsaw University that was attacked by the riot police, dispatched by the state. So the events of 1968 um, in Polish narratives, um, they are called the March events or March. Uh, They started with a cultural event, a party ban on performing the play the Forefathers' Eve at the National Theatre in Warsaw. This play was written by the Polish national poet from the Romantic era, Adam Mickiewicz. It depicts students in the 1820s plotting against the oppressive Russian Empire. So, uh, as you could see, uh, there were a lot of parallels between the era of imperial domination in the 19th century and the communist era in Poland. The regime banned the performance because it claimed that this play, in fact, contained anti-Russian and anti-socialist elements. The ban went into effect in January 1968, and at that time there was a demonstration to protest the ban. Two students were expelled from the university for participating in this demonstration and then talking about it to a French journalist. So on March 8, 1968, students at Warsaw University organized this rally in support of cultural freedom and for reinstating the two expelled students. The two expelled students were Adam Michnik and Henrik Schleifer. This was a peaceful demonstration. The students read a manifesto in which they declared that they are defending Polish traditions and the Polish constitution, and then they were going to go home. However, the state dispatched units of voluntary citizens' militia and the riot police to attack the demonstrations. So this was a violent state action. In response, other students joined in solidarity protests. 
uh, other students in Warsaw and also in other cities throughout Poland. So the student demonstrations continued for another two months or so. March 1968 figures prominently in uh, the narratives of post-war Polish history as a moment of national rebe rebellion uh, against the communist regime. You have the sequence of periodic rebellions supposedly starting in 1956, then 1968, and then um, 1980 with the solidarity movement and finally ending with the collapse of communism. So there is this idea of linear progression. But my um, interpretation was different. I decided to look at the student protests in Poland from a more global perspective, because to me, this was part of the global 1968, not just the Polish 1968. This, the students who led the protests identified themselves as leftists, they considered themselves to be Marxist, but they were critical about the Marxist-Leninist ideology that was practiced in Poland and in the Soviet Union and other countries of the Soviet bloc. So I asked about how alternative Marxism looked like in an ostensibly Marxist state. And I found that these students often connected to the wider community of students of the international new left. They engaged with their ideas. Uh, they identified with the anti-imperialist and anti-colonial agendas, um, but they also emphasized Soviet imperialism. Um, some of the Polish intellectuals at the time uh, were making connections between destalinization and decolonization as parallel movements against superpower imperialism. So to me, this was a competition that was about who represented the true socialist internationalism, the state or the students, the young people who considered themselves Marxists. So students insisted that Marxists should fight against any imperialism and oppression, including the one coming from the Soviet superpower. At the same time, the Polish state accused the students of being foreign agents, of acting on behalf of the enemies of socialism, especially the US, West Germany and Israel. So you could see the use of transnational imagination in very different ways on both sides. In my book, I also argue that 1968 had its own version in the Polish countryside. So this was not a phenomenon limited to students or urban youth. In fact, the subtitle of the chapter on um, village youth is Rural Rebels in Search of Modernity. And what I meant by that was rebelling against the traditional village culture in different ways. Young people were at the forefront of making village life modern. They were seeking independence from parents, from the village community, traditional rural culture in Poland 
um, was highly patriarchal, governed by hierarchies of gender and age. So the rebels, the 68ers in the village, were seeking autonomy as independent human beings. At the same time, it was not a selfish project because they also wanted to modernize the village to make it more progressive, both in terms of uh, the values, but also in terms of adopting modern technology. I write about the motorcycle in the village as a tool of independence um, for young people. One major difference between the student 1968 and the village 1968 was that rural young people often rebelled with help from the state rather than against the state. This does not mean that they did not have their own ideas about modernity or socialism, but they often found allies in official youth organizations who were also interested in modernizing the village as part of the socialist project. So I talk about one example um, of a state-supported uh, search for modernity in the countryside. And these were the so-called club cafes. They were organized and managed by young people, especially young women. These were places that provided an urban type entertainment for rural communities. Club cafes typically featured a radio, television, popular magazines such as Around the World. And they also served coffee, natural coffee which was new to the rural environment because villagers in Poland at that time um, were not used to drinking coffee. Coffee was very much associated with the cities, the coffee houses. So this was a way to modernize the rural population by popularizing the ritual of drinking coffee and also taking men away from drinking alcohol. Uh, Club cafes connected rural population to the world through communal watching of the television. Polish television featured significant amount of foreign production, American miniseries such as Bonanza. They were also watching uh, the live broadcast of the American landing on the moon. Poland was the only country in the Eastern Bloc that had a live broadcast of the Apollo 11 mission. So rural young women especially became central to youth rebellion in the countryside. They considered themselves to be agents of modernity. And it was really interesting to see the language that these young women were using in their memoirs. They talked about the men in the village as peasants backward, uneducated, but they, the girls, they were modern, uh, modern, more educated and more knowledgeable about the world. So in many ways, young women were at the forefront of the rural 1968. Um, they also um, propelled what I consider the sexual revolution in the countryside. The sexual revolution in the rural environment was to a large extent about taking personal control of the female body away from the village community. 
And one of the most surprising findings in my research was that young women created these so-called health schools in the countryside. They um, organized, they invited um, medical doctors and other medical professionals to speak about female reproduction, hygiene, to speak about abortion, contraception, including practical knowledge where to obtain contraception in their locality, which was very important if one lived in a remote village. So young women were eager to acquire modern knowledge, scientific knowledge about their bodies. The health schools uh, discussing the female body in public were a shock to the traditional village community, in particular mothers and priests uh, very much opposed the health schools. Uh, but young women persisted, they kept organizing them. This is also fascinating and such an important contribution to understanding sexuality and everyday life under state socialism. And of course, challenging the conventional historiography on sex ed under socialism, namely that only teachers and doctors were involved in educating young people about sexuality and that young people were just passive recipients. But here you demonstrate that actually young people, in particular young women, are seeking out information, right? Because they want to understand reproductive health better. They want to be able to control their fertility. Uh, and they also want to learn more about how one negotiates sexual encounters and relationships. And I imagine when these women look back on that period, uh, they are somewhat nostalgic for it because they played such an active role in this facet of their lives and it was empowering for them. Yes, and that's another example of a state-facilitated space exactly. for this kind of activity. But at the same time, once the young women become engaged in it, they shape it according yep. to their own needs. This is such an important finding because, of course, it, it goes against conventional understandings of socialist states, right, as being disempowering, oppressive, inhibiting, right? But you demonstrate, of course, that the state uh, was empowering for women. It enabled them to have a voice. I'd like to move on to Chapter 8 now, where you examine the post-1968 period and here you argue that the state assimilated and indigenized globalization and that this new narrative uh, of globalization emerged uh, in which the West is depicted as disintegrating as a result of political conflicts and pollution and deteriorating morality, while the East, by contrast, so the socialist East, has emerged from this period of the 60s closer to the ideal of morality. So can you elaborate on this? In December 1970, there is a powerful workers' rebellion on the Baltic coast. So in 1968, we have a student and youth rebellion. In 1970, we have a rebellion of workers, mostly young workers. The leaders are in their 20s. One of them is Lech Wałęsa, who is 27 at the time. So Gomułka ordered the rebellion to be crushed by the Polish army and the police forces. More than 40 people were killed, many were wounded. So this was the communist state shooting at workers. After that tragedy, 
Gomułka was forced to resign and he was replaced by a new first secretary, Edward Gierek, who had a reputation for being open to the West. He spoke fluent French. He was considered to be one of the most modern, progressive party leaders at the time. And indeed, Gierek's approach to young people was very different from the last years of Gomułka. Right? I mean, Gomułka's rule ended badly, the crashing of the student and youth rebellion, the anti-Semitic campaign, which we didn't talk about, but it was also part of, of a backlash against the student rebellion in 1968, and then the workers' rebellion of 1970. So Gierek decided to... Uh, develop a different approach. He decided to court Polish society, including young people with consumer goods and with expanding opportunities for travel abroad. So the whole era of the 1970s is considered to be dominated by consumer socialism. And this is something that is taking place all over the Eastern Bloc during that time, providing the good life for socialist citizens as a way to achieve support or at least compliance. And this model worked, especially in the early 1970s when the economic growth was really impressive in Poland and the material situation of many Poles improved significantly. So regarding young people, Gierek had a clever strategy. His regime basically announced that Poland achieved modernity, that it was no longer necessary to discuss the meaning of modernity. Uh, the new regime provided the best modernity that was possible in the world. They provided economic security, opportunities for education, for access to consumer goods. We have even more foreign consumer goods uh, entering Poland. The Coca-Cola comes to Poland during that time. So, but there is a price to pay. The Gierek regime absorbed many trends and aspirations of the 60s movements. Youth culture becomes part of the official policy. So the state is providing young people with consumer goods, with youth fashion. Uh, they also allowed for a, a kind of a state-sponsored counterculture. I talk about this avant-garde student magazine that was published in Kraków, uh, entitled Student. And that magazine featured amazing material from the West. Uh, not only material about entertainment, but political material about student protests, about counterculture, the sexual revolution. And the people, the young people who worked at the magazine looked like hippies. And again, this was all done as part of the accepted official culture. So to me, this is the end of the 60s in Poland, the end of the global 60s, because you no longer have debates about youth culture. You no longer have youth rebellion coming from below. Um, I talk about something that in Polish was called hippisowanie or hippiness. 
um, in the 1970s, it was okay to look and behave like a hippie. Men with long hair were accepted. They were even glamorized. I have a picture of a hippie-looking father on one of the covers of the student magazine ITD. Uh, and this hippie-looking father is feeding a baby from a bottle. So again, the state domesticates youth rebellion. And this trend is similar to what was happening in the West during that time. In the West, it's the commercial culture that absorbs many aspects of counterculture and other youth movements. So hippie fashion, for example, becomes, becomes commercialized. It's not a sign of rebellion anymore. I call this approach the Polish road to globalization. Your discussion of the way in which the Polish state not only tolerated, accepted, but even promoted these alternative lifestyles among youth, alternative ways of dressing, of wearing one's hair is really fascinating and, and demonstrates the varying ways in which states dealt with young people, right? In, in Romania, you would not have such a situation. Young people uh, who engaged in alternative lifestyles, right, were dubbed uh, anti-socialists, certainly young men who had long hair were not accepted, were not promoted. Um, and so I think it's really fascinating to look at different ways in which socialist regimes during this period of mature socialism uh, sought to legitimate their rule and sought to at least secure some popular support among young people. And on the topic of mature socialism, um, let's move on to its further maturity and, and ultimate decay. So I'd like to talk a little bit about the 1980s and then the immediate post-1989 period. And you discuss how the generation that was shaped by the global 60s then become some of the dissidents who play a decisive role in the solidarity movement and then eventually in the roundtable negotiations in 1989. And then, of course, some of them also assume a role in the post-1989 government. So can you talk a bit about this? In the book, I very much avoided making arguments about a specific generation. Um, I think that um, the 60s generation is an overused and distorted term. I could not avoid the fact, however, that many of the leftist students from 1968 became members of the um, anti-communist opposition and then of the post-communist political and intellectual elites. They were the driving force behind the collapse of communism in the late 1980s. And then they shaped the transition to democracy. So 1968 is really important in reorienting the student activists away from international issues, from concerns about imperialism, global social injustice, the power of the superpowers, um, away from those kind of new left 60s issues and towards nationalism. The anti-Semitic campaign launched by the state against the students in the wake of the March 1968 protest was especially important at that time, many dissidents understood that the only way to challenge the communist regime was through 
appealing to Polish nationalism, not to new left internationalism, but Polish nationalism. And they also reorient their transnational imagination towards the market. Um, this happens especially during the transition uh, in the early 1990s. So they develop this new understanding of global connection, uh, of globalization understood as participation in global economy through neoliberal policies. And this becomes the most desirable approach to the world, very different from the one that they had in the 60s. So this sounds like a sad ending, but I also say in the book that imagining the world did not end with the collapse of communism, that it is still going on. How to relate to the international community, not only in economic terms, but in human terms, is an ongoing question for Poland and for any other place in the world. Yeah, I was going to actually ask about that as my penultimate question, um, because, of course, there have been a lot of crackdowns in Poland, obviously on reproductive freedom, but also LGBTQ individuals. And so where do we see young people uh, assuming an active role in, in challenging the increased conservatism and authoritarian and, and intolerant tendencies of of the regime and certain parts of the population. I have been thinking about this question about youth movements of today um, being in many ways similar to the youth movements of the 60s. Um, I have been thinking about this question a lot and I don't know if I have a good answer. We are operating in a different historical context one obvious difference is that young people are fewer in numbers these days. In the 60s, part of the strength of the young generation came from the sheer numbers. There were so many young people everywhere. At the same time, today, the global assault on democracy is generating youth movements that resemble in many ways the movements of the 60s. And this is a global phenomenon. These movements take different forms. They are not always street protests. Some of them have to do with practical help to people who are excluded or targeted by anti-democratic governments such as the one in Poland. In Poland, one of the most significant movements are the black protests, demonstrations against the anti-abortion law in Poland. This is a youth-dominated movement. It's a movement dominated by young women in particular. So, the black protests were a series of actions and demonstrations that took place between 2016 and early 2021. They aimed at protesting new restrictions placed on an already restrictive anti-abortion legislation in Poland. So they started as demonstrations to defend reproductive rights, 
but their aims were more diverse. Um, they connected the crackdown on reproductive rights to the larger um, attack on democratic values in Poland, to the dominant role of the Catholic Church in Polish politics. Uh, at the moment, the church is an official ally of the ruling party, the law and justice. So these demonstrations demand a secular and democratic state. The black protests were most active several years ago, but they persist in other forms. And one of them is creating an effective network of organizations that help Polish women obtain abortions in other countries of the EU. So there is a lot of practical help provided by, um, by these organizations. Another important activity of the activists associated with the Black protests is providing help to women refugees from Ukraine. That's obviously very inspiring, and I'm glad to see that young people are so involved in these important endeavors as, as they're facing an increasingly repressive government. Okay, it's been really fascinating speaking with you. I really enjoyed your book, Gosha. I assigned it to my graduate class, and they enjoyed it very much as well. And I just want to close with a, a question about what you're currently working on. I am starting a new book project. It focuses on the late 1980s and early 1990s in Poland, um, the time of the transition to democracy, but also the time when the shape of the post-communist order was still in the making. So the goal is to capture a moment when the shape of Polish democracy was contested among diverse social groups. I want to depart from this conventional binary between the solidarity opposition on one side and the communist party on the other side uh, that dominates existing accounts of the transition in Poland. When people write about that time, they tend to look and reduce everything to the conflict or competition between these two camps. You were either pro-communist or pro-solidarity. In reality, there were many movements that could not be categorized in this way. And I am looking at three movements from below that resist this kind of binary categorization. One is a popular movement to protect reproductive rights. Um, the reproductive rights came under attack by the Catholic Church and solidarity-dominated government in the early 1990s. Abortion was delegalized in Poland in 1993, despite massive protests. The second movement I am looking at is the popular defense of secular education against the introduction of Catholic religious instruction in public schools. And the third one would be a powerful wave of strikes, including the largest teacher's strike in Polish history in the summer of 1993 against large-scale privatization and dismantling of public programs. And I hope to ground my arguments about these social movements 
in the framework of everyday life and the challenges that individuals and groups faced as they adjusted to the unprecedented systemic change on all levels. This is really exciting and important research because, as you said, there's so many binaries involved in, in studying this transition period, and the nuance has gotten lost for years. And so it's, it's time that we go back and revisit this, and especially if we're hoping to include the voices of individuals who are now getting old in our analysis. So uh, we welcome your research and look forward to it. And I just wanted to close again by thanking you for this fantastic conversation and for writing such a fascinating book. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here.